0: I like the way you work the opposition Nobody does that quite the way you do
1: When you want to smoke the competition Nobody does that quite like you Nobody does that Nobody does that Nobody does that
2: Hello and welcome to episode 1671 of Effectively Wild, a fangrafts baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: Well, as goes Shohei Otani, so goes my mood. So I'm doing quite well, thank you.
2: <laughs> I'm just... You know, the world presents us, Ben, with opportunities for our own interests to be sort of misaligned with other people's. And that's always a bummer because you just want people to do well. And then sometimes the world presents you with a chance that, you know, the the stuff you want for um, people you don't know and the stuff you want for people you do, they just match up perfectly. And so I would want, you know, Shoei Tani to have the best stuff no matter how you felt about him because uh, he seems like a good sort and he's a fun exciting player and you know we want him to move past this this early part of his career in the US that has been marred by injury but it's mm-hmm. just also so nice when stuff line, you know lines up it, it just lines up so nice you're like ah that's good I, I like this person I know and I uh, have a positive impression of this person I don't and everybody's it's, everything's coming up Ben and Joey. It really is.
1: Yeah. Unless this is your first time listening to the podcast. And if it is, welcome aboard. You know, I am (laughs) partial to Shohei Otani. So if he struggles or gets hurt, my heart will shrivel and look like the Grinches before it grows. But (laughs) for now, all is well. And when he excels, my heart grows three sizes in a day. And Sunday was just wonderful for those who have not followed (laughs) Shohei's every outing with the attention that I have. He hit and pitch in the same game. It was NL rules, right? They were playing the Padres in the Padres home park and Shohei hit and he started. And this is something that he said he wants to do this season and hopes to do more, even if it means surrendering the DH at times, potentially. And he was just fantastic. He threw 102 miles per hour. He threw some nasty splitters. He singled twice and walked against Blake Snell. I mean, he did it all. It was wonderful. And maybe people will get sick of hearing me rhapsodize about Shohei Otani every time he does anything, but... I hope they do, because that will mean he has continued to play and succeed. That is all I want from this season, really. And I hope people will pardon me for harping on something that is quite likely, literally, a once in a lifetime event. Many baseball fans lived and died without seeing something like this. And the fragility of Otani himself over the past few years reminds us how precious and rare and tenuous this is. It's not like if he fails, there's necessarily another two way star right behind him. And in fact, if he fails, he may. Makes it less likely that anyone else will want to attempt this or be allowed to attempt this. So the stakes are even higher and I'm going to be pulling hard for him as long as this lasts. And one of the nice things about this is that I feel like most other people are pulling for him too. And how often are we all pulling in the same direction these days? So even if you're not quite as tickled by it as I am, why would you root against it?
2: I have two thoughts, the first of which is that... I like the idea very much of someone just joining the podcast (laughs) 1,671 episodes.
1: Someone must. You got to start somewhere.
2: You got to start somewhere. But it it offers a very strange alternative history of Effectively Wild because they would have heard me say, and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. And I'm sure they'd sit there and go, well, I guess these two have done (laughs) 1,670 episodes together. And if that Mm -hmm. is your impression, I encourage you to go to the back catalog because you've missed out on some really funny stuff that- (laughs) I had nothing to do with if we're being totally candid so there's that part of it and then I think the second thing is that I have been underestimating Otani's spring training and I have been mostly focused on him from a pitching perspective when I have been looking at him because it's like that's the thing that's the most in doubt and we're kind of you know we're (laughs) we're feeling out whether this whole thing is going to work and we want it to so badly and so that has been the focus for me you know how is this splitter working and what is the velo like and has he been able to retire guys and and i have seen the very big home runs because it would be impossible to be on baseball twitter and not see the very big home runs and it is only 26 plate appearances so i think that i have sufficiently caveated this but ben he is hitting (laughs) he has a a 636 batting average he has a, a 1836 ops like He's (laughs) He's yep. <laughs> just having a—he's having a very nice little spring at the plate, to the extent that he's been at the plate. So uh, I—I'm—I'm I'm enjoying this in a new way. I love it when I get an opportunity to be like, "Hey, have you seen this person's stats that are readily available on the internet? <laughs> are you aware of this?"
1: <laughs> I am well aware of this in this case, but yeah, he's also struck out 14 batters in eight innings pitched. But that's uh, not a bad slash line, even if hitting were the only job that he suck. was doing, you'd have to be pretty happy with that and watching on Sunday like Blake Snell great pitcher valuable player he was not allowed to swing in that game like he just went up to the plate and sort of fake bunted and he just took some strikes and went and sat down again and that just drove home to me how Shohei is just in a class of his own I mean other pitchers either intentionally don't hit or unintentionally don't hit because they're incapable of hitting And yet Shohei Otani, who I've neglected to mention, was batting leadoff in this game, which, as many people pointed out, has not been done by a pitcher in a major league game or a starting pitcher, at least since 1901. And that's just, you're constantly seeing something that no one has done in a century with him, which is the great thing. Like, I, I looked at a reply to a tweet that I think Fabian Ardaya sent that was about how he threw 102 and reached base three times. And... The reply was something about, like, you know, citing his career stats, which are somewhat pedestrian in the majors so far because of all the injuries, and saying, you know, he's not ready for the Hall of Fame yet or something like that, just sort of downplaying what he accomplished. And I just look at those replies like, I'm Michael Scott talking to Toby, like, why are you the way that you are? Just because. (laughs) I know it's spring training. I know he has struggled to stay healthy. I know these stats don't count. And I'm not trying to put much more stock in this spring training hot streak than I put in the spring training cold streak in 2018. But he still does things on a daily basis, basically whenever he is playing, that no one else does and no one else really could conceivably do. And no one has done in an extremely long time, if ever. I mean, you know, it wasn't like Babe Ruth was throwing 102 with nasty splitters either. So... Really, just every day is a gift that we are given to see this singular person do these things that no one else does. And obviously, he has to do it many days in a row in order for it to be truly lasting and spectacular. But really, it is spectacular, even if he does it one time, because no one else is capable of doing it one time. And so I watched the the Snyder Cut on Saturday night. before the (laughs) Otani start. Yeah, really, I I started on Saturday night and then I finished on (laughs) Sunday morning because it's four hours long, but... None of the superpowers in that movie Impress me as much as Just seeing Otani on Sunday And it just kind of makes me Giddy as people can probably tell Like I just sort of caught myself Sitting there grinning you know I was watching With my wife Jessie and, and She's a big fan of Otani too And it's like appointment viewing In a way that for me at least Spring training baseball is Generally not but with Otani It's like okay when is he starting next Okay what time is he starting Who is he starting against? Okay, we'll make sure to set some time aside. And it just sort of like reduces me to or elevates me to A state of childlike wonder, basically, that I just don't get watching any other player. I mean, no matter how much I appreciate them and and enjoy their skill, he's doing something that no one else could dream of doing. And it impresses me so much, even after a few years now of at least getting used to the idea Seeing it now and and seeing him fully operational, taking pleasure in the fact that this guy standing on the mound is the same as the guy who was just standing in against one of the best left-handed pitchers in the game from the left side of the plate and looking totally unfazed and as hitterish as any other middle-of-the-order batter. This is not an optical illusion. This is happening. It's just something that I want to continue all season long, regardless of what his future is. Just give us one whole healthy season to really strut his stuff on both sides of the ball, see how good it could be, and at least give me the memory of that that I can treasure in the future, regardless of what turns his career takes.
2: I want that for you and I want that for him. This is good stuff for everyone.
1: He has to pan out because he has spoiled prospects for me. Like, uh, you know, I read (laughs) about, oh, Jack Leiter, top draft prospect through a no hitter. That's cool. Can he hit? No? Oh, well, okay. It's, it's just like, really, he's ruined athletes for me <laughs> from now on. So if he doesn't fully pan out and tap into this potential, then I don't know what I'm going to do because uh, everyone else, no matter how good they are at one thing, they just don't do both.
2: Well, he can't pitch, but I wonder if Wander Franco might change your mind on prospects when week. When the time comes, there might be other good stuff, Ben.
1: Maybe. There are some other good players out there. I will concede (laughs) that. (laughs) A few. All right. Well, that concludes today's edition of Effectively Otani. So we're doing team previews today. We've got two NL East teams today. We'll be talking to Disha Thosar of the New York Daily News about the Mets. Followed by Jordan McPherson of the Miami Herald about the Miami Marlins. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you were probably wondering why we weren't talking about the Mets and the Marlins for the past 10 minutes. There's banter before the main event. So I guess just a a couple newsy things we could quickly get to before that. First, there was the Salvador Perez extension. I believe the biggest contract in Kansas City Royals history surpassing the Alex Gordon deal. This is four years, 82 million starting in 2022, which was not news that I expected to see, or at least not terms that I expected to see necessarily, but this sort of fits into the Royals' recent pattern, it seems like, of operating and and treating their players in a certain way that they hope Sets them apart from other teams And also I don't want to discount the fact That Salvador Perez is coming off a really Excellent season rare Career year at the bat with uh, 60 game caveats And was by many metrics Maybe the most valuable catcher in baseball So it's not as if this is Total payback for Having given him a a team Friendly extension at the start of his career Which of course they subsequently Tore up as well but This is a, a deal that probably at least with these specific terms not many teams would make in this day and age.
2: I continue to find the Royals so fascinating because on the one hand, I don't know that some of the contract decisions they've made have been like Necessarily what I would have done in a vacuum. (laughs) But I also think that it's important for us to acknowledge that, like, one, you know, and some of this is going to change, and there are guys who are going to go through arbitration and they might sign other dudes and they might bring back some of the guys they have who are set to hit free agency next year. But, like, if you look at the roster resource payroll pages, like, they they have $48 million in guaranteed money in 22. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, on the one hand, some of these have been kind of head scratchy, but at the same time, they also. Also don't really it doesn't strike me that that any of the the moves they've made this year that will sort of still be on the books in twenty twenty two and beyond are setting them up to like be out of the market for a big free agent when the time comes. And right. so I do think that this is odd, but it's clear that like that clubhouse Loves Salvador Perez and the yep. front office loves Salvador Perez. And as you noted, he he did have a, a very impressive 2020, even if you know the the degree to which he performed at the plate and the shortness of the season and then his participation in that short season, because he didn't play the whole 60 games might make us say, well, we're bound for some regression here. And so mm-hmm. it's like on the one hand, this seems weird. Like a lot of the weird stuff they've done, but I also don't think that it's going to matter in a way that could be detrimental to them, even at $20 million. So, like, okay. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's encouraging in the sense that it shows that they will spend, and hopefully this will be a precursor to further spending when the team gets more competitive. Maybe the team believes it's already competitive, but perhaps we are a little lower or less sanguine about their chances. But I think it's probably a a good sign that a new owner is willing to hand out a contract like this. And, you know, I think of Perez as older than he is. He's not actually old. I mean, he's been around forever. He debuted in 2011, but he's still 30 years old now. And so it's not as if he's necessarily over the hill here. He has been worked hard, of course, and likes to work hard and, and wants to work hard and I wonder actually whether it will end up being beneficial for him, A, that there was the shortened season in 2020, and B, that he missed all of 2019 with Tommy John surgery, because he's someone who never wanted to take a day off, and his offense seemed to suffer for that in a lot of seasons. He's historically been a better first-half hitter than second-half hitter, and sometimes it just seemed like man maybe you should take a day off you yeah. know <laughs> maybe that will rejuvenate you and maybe it did you know i'm i'm not saying that if he took more days off he would slug 633 every year and bat 333 but maybe that break at that point in his career, will end up extending it on the back end. It's just total speculation, but it seems like kind of having that enforced breather that he never would have wanted to take on his own, maybe that will preserve his career. And as you mentioned, team leader, face of the franchise, fan favorite, etc., so, you know, between the the performance, which was not just limited to offense, right. he also framed competently. He yeah. He seemed to, according to the framing stats. And again, it's 30 games, so I don't know what to make of this, but framing is something that seems to stabilize pretty quickly. And that has been the big defensive drawback about him for years and years, according to the stats. And he's what a five time gold Glover or something like that. And he seems to do everything else on defense. Well, but framing is something that he has perennially been pretty poor at, according to the metrics and, he at least got to about average or so in twenty twenty, so you know, if that were to reflect a real change of some sort, we have seen some catchers learn to frame at advanced stages in their career. I don't know whether he did anything different or again, whether that's just an artifact of the short season, but that would help too, so yeah, you know he may end up being worth much of or most of. This contract just on a pure dollars per win level, and it comes down to to more than that with Perez. But again, you know, handing out this deal to a, a veteran catcher whose performance track record has been somewhat spotty, probably not a deal that every organization would make. So it is interesting to have the Royals as sort of an outlier that seem to be doing things to treat their front office people well and their scouts well and their minor leaguers well, and maybe they're doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. Maybe they are doing it to develop a reputation for treating people that way because they think it will give them an edge you know if they're not going to be able to outspend every organization then they will be the place where people want to play
2: yeah and it's interesting i mean i think that in much the same way that we like cautioned people about thinking that steve cohen was like your favorite uncle it's like well everyone (laughs) relax like i don't you know i I think it's just too Early to have like a very strong And definitive opinion about Royals ownership but you do wonder Mm -hmm. if You know coming from being a minority Owner in Cleveland to Kansas City if there was like a desire to do things Differently we're just gonna see I'm not Giving anyone any credit that they haven't Earned yet I'm Mm -hmm. impressed with what they've Done so far and I look forward to seeing what comes Next but yeah it is an interesting organizational Approach as we talked about before I'm also Realizing how little Royals baseball I watched Last year I guess (laughs) outside of The games that were started by their top pitching Prospects. and how much Royals baseball did you watch last year? Back?
1: <laughs> I don't really have any vivid memories of watching any Royals baseball last year. Like it probably happened, but I can't tell you when or how often.
2: Because here's the thing that I am noticing about Salvador Perez's stat line from last year, which I was sort of like background aware of, but now I'm being confronted with. He had a a three seventy five. Babip, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I want to know what that looked like. <laughs> yeah, I am, I am intrigued by the idea of Salvador Perez, three seventy five, Babip guy. So anyway, we're gonna get. 20 billion emails about that i'm giving so much credit to how much royals baseball all of our listeners watched <laughs> last year also. but anyway it certainly is it's interesting to see the sort of counter narrative to the way that the rest of the league is doing things and we you know we don't want to uh give too much credit to any org or 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 underestimate the ability of an org to engage in tomfoolery because every org seems to do that at some point or another but it is nice to see uh counter to that in the present that we hope persist into the future because yeah wouldn't it wouldn't it be nice if the way you build a winning baseball team is to just, just like play the young guys who are good and treat the people who work for you well and yeah mm-hmm. there's there's some weird stuff in the past with the royals and I will never get a satisfactory answer to like the anti-porn thing, which (laughs) if you're a new listener, welcome to Effectively Wild.
1: (laughs) That remains mystifying.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? I don't want to think, I don't want to know any more about it. I don't want to know a single more a single fact more than I do, uh, do right now. But so there's, yeah. you know, there's oddity everywhere. But I like it when the oddity manifests in, we think this guy is good and we'd like him to be around to help sort of manage. And I was about to say handle right after the porn thing and that was going to be bad. <laughs> and so yeah. instead I will say guide a young pitching staff and so we will pay him money to, to retain his services. That's a good bit of oddity now. Oh, now we're gonna I don't yeah. know I don't know yeah. what this is gonna mean for our female. You
3: know. <laughs> I'm
2: so sorry
1: we should always be prepared for public figures to be milkshake ducked in some way yeah. but <laughs> but you know when it comes down to it maybe that's one of the more benign ways like uh being anti-porn is probably preferable <laughs> to like texting people unwanted porn basically which uh yeah. of which we're oh, gonna no. do a Mets preview soon but <laughs> But yes, i I think the Royals at least seem to be charting a path for themselves as a little bit different from others, and I will be interested to see where that path leads. Salvador Perez, by the way, had a nine point eight percent infield hit rate last year, which means that basically, you know one out of every ten grounders that he hit. Was uh, a base hit. So I don't know how that happened. I I looked at his sprint speed and he was not so refreshed by his time off that his sprint speed was suddenly amazing. It was about the same as it had been in 2018. So not a burner all of a sudden. So maybe had some well-placed dribblers or something, but that happened.
2: Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is this is a funny thing because Ben Clemens wrote about Prez's extension for us at Fangrass. And because of positional power rankings, I didn't edit that piece. I was editing other stuff. And so Sir John edited that. And I, I was like, oh, maybe there's an answer here. And I, I don't know that there is, but now I might <laughs> ask someone to go find out about his Babbit for me, just as a as like a hey, how's it going? Because yeah. I remain. I, that's a that's a, seems like a lot of infield in hits for a catcher. Is all it does. Is all I would yes,
1: say a, a career high for him, and we talk a lot about team spending and we urge teams to spend and we don't necessarily mean spend indiscriminately I mean (laughs) there has to be some purpose to the spending like the the spending is the means to an end of winning hopefully and there are teams that spend and don't win and then there are teams that don't spend and do win and so just spending is not always the answer but I think you know when it comes to distribution of revenues and all of that that's a, a a larger conversation that plays into labor relations and all of the things that are potentially leading to a, a work stoppage sometime soon. So we want to see some spending in that sense and, you know, want to see players get credited for the revenue that they generate, etc. But, you know, you can still critique perhaps individual ways of spending (laughs) just because if we're just reduced to, oh, more dollars good regardless of of what happens, then that wouldn't be very interesting analysis for anyone. So it's good that the Royals are willing to spend. It it remains to be seen whether they are spending in a way that will eventually propel them back to the playoffs.
2: Yeah. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that they have some interesting young guys who they seem willing to play when they're Mm -hmm. ready and they seem to be willing to spend some money and I would not be surprised if they end up being you know when we have to do staff predictions every year which I know is one of your least favorite assignments at Mm -hmm. the ringer and it is not anyone's favorite assignment at fangraphs as far as I know but I would not be surprised if the royals were like you know you go into that exercise and you're like well I can't just do what the projection because that's boring. I gotta have a couple. I gotta have a couple spicy picks because right. otherwise people are going to accuse me of cowardice or or um, being boring, and both of those things are bad mm-hmm. as ways to be. And I would not be surprised if there were a number of people who are like, you know, it's a fun spicy pick, the yes. Royals. <laughs> yeah, it could be a spicy pick.
1: Yeah, trendy sleeper. Who knows? We'll see. But. <laughs>
2: It's just, it's. I
1: hope that we can get through the rest of spring training without any catastrophic injuries or anything. Let's just get this thing started. Which you
2: knock on wood.
1: I know, and and the Blue Jays uh, neglected to knock on wood. I guess because injuries struck for them. This week, just before we started recording, we were saying that uh, Kirby Yates, it seems like, is headed for Tommy John surgery, unfortunately for him, and Toronto coming off of an earlier elbow surgery, and George Springer has an oblique strain, and Robbie Ray has a bruised elbow, and you sort of hate to see that after a a team has a lot of excitement generated by an active offseason, and then a bunch of those acquisitions get dinged up or even ruled out for the rest of the season. (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat That's never good And there was a A brief scare With Fernando Tatis Who seems to be fine Everyone Stand down Looks like he's okay But even just for A second We We must protect The players Because we now Just have a week Or so to go Until spring training And no one wants To see anyone Go down At this point In games that Don't count Like As a fan As I recall I always just Wanted my team To get through Spring training Unscathed So that you could Get to opening day and run out your A lineup and not have to lament the game on March 13th that meant nothing where you lost someone for months. And we're going to talk about Carlos Carrasco and his hamstring shortly. So not everyone is unscathed, but it it seems like for the most part, the toll hasn't been too terrible so far this spring, which is a, a positive coming off of the shortened season and with a lot of uncertainty about how that would affect players' health.
2: The shortstop positional power rankings run tomorrow. And (laughs) so when I got the little Tatis uh, alert across the transom, I have like four more blurbs to edit. Just four just four more and the the Padres are done and I won't I won't spoil where they are, but you might expect Ben that they're pretty high up there on Mm -hmm. the list. And I went, no. (laughs) Speaking of, you know, your interests being aligned with uh, strangers, it's like you know, me and Fernando, we're right there together. (laughs) Yeah. So yes, hopefully the early indications that it is gonna be fine proved to be true but i will warn everyone that if they don't it is directly the result of the shortstop rankings running on wednesday and that being <laughs> the day that we are expected to get official word about his injury status so i'm very sorry in advance if anything uh, if anything is bad and i wish it were me take my shoulder instead i just sit in front of a dumb computer all day what do i need it for Nothing. Some
1: similar conversations occurred at the ringer because we had a Padres-Dodgers player draft that I did with Michael Bauman and Zach Krim and Bobby Wagner where we just drafted six players apiece from the Dodgers and the Padres just because those two rosters are so stacked. And that should be up on Wednesday morning. And again, not a spoiler to say that Fernando Tatis went high in that draft as well. So we have so many reasons to root for his health. And probably the more minor ones are related to content that we had running at our respective sites on Wednesday. But that was still a consideration yeah. <laughs> for us in the content creation game.
2: The, the, the major ones being that we, we like fun. And, yes. And God is he fun.
1: (laughs) Yes. So last thing, we got an email from a listener who directed us to the featured article at Wikipedia on Monday, I believe, this week, which was about a player named Lewis. That is almost all that we know about Lewis. This article got a, a bunch of attention. I saw it was linked on the baseball subreddit as well because it was featured on Wikipedia. And it's a fun read because Lewis is, he's one of. I think 30-some major league, non-Negro league players for whom we don't have a a given name. We know only their surname. We know that they played in a major league game. We know their last name, and we know very little else, including not knowing their first name even. And so Lewis, who appeared in a single game for the short-lived Buffalo Bisons of the equally short-lived Players League, on July 12th, 1890. He is a major leaguer. He has a baseball reference page. That's almost all we know. And yet, somehow, he has an almost 2,000 word long Wikipedia page. With uh, 40 citations, (laughs) which is impressive because there's almost no information about him. Amazing. So you figure, what would you be linking to? But there's a lot of rigor here, which is something that you encounter with Wikipedia because it's a a crowdsourced enterprise. And so if there is a single editor who happens to get interested in something, then you can end up with a very thorough and rigorously researched Wikipedia article about a somewhat insignificant historical figure. And I know that that. That is a subject of some debate among Wikipedians, you know, the newsworthiness, the wiki worthiness of some athletes, especially not very prominent athletes like our pal Lewis here on episode 1633. Back in December, I mentioned and linked to a list of the longest baseball player Wikipedia pages, and Lewis is not one of the longest, but he did get a longer page paradoxically because there's so little known about him. So Lewis uh, has an interesting story. I particularly enjoyed the fact that He got this chance because he asked for a tryout, and that was all it took. So the Bisons' record was 17-42. and They were going nowhere. They did not have a lot of pitching. And Lewis, who was reportedly a local boy born in Brooklyn, so that's something that we know about Lewis, he asked the Bisons' player manager, Jack Rowe, for a tryout. And the tryout was just apparently that he got to be the starting pitcher (laughs) in a game which uh, tells you that baseball was different in those days.
2: And the starting pitcher, right? It's not like they were like, yeah, yeah, you know, you should should come on and uh we'll we'll play the game and then you'll you'll get an inning in the ba- right. uh, in the back end of it, you know. We'll see Garbage how you time. Yeah, we'll see how you do and if you don't, you know, if it's a close one today, well you'll throw tomorrow when it's not close. They're like, "No, nah, you should you should just get out there."
1: <laughs> yeah. Throw a side session. Can we see you throw a pitch? I mean, you know, maybe they did a little bit of due diligence and established that he could at least throw a pitch, but he couldn't have thrown pitches very well because in the three innings he pitched in this game, he allowed 20 earned runs and then moved to left field and spent the rest of the game there. So that's why he's sort of newsworthy in that he has an ERA of 60 that is 6.0 and a whip of 6.667. Those are uh, the highest figures in the short history of the Players League. And in fact, that ERA is also the highest in the long history of the major leagues. If you go to StatHead on Baseball Reference and set the minimum at two innings pitched, there's Lewis at the top of the leaderboard with his 60 ERA, right above Paul Janisch, the position player who pitched a couple of ugly innings in 2009 and ended up at 49.5. And so people have wondered who was this mystery man, Lewis, but... No one really knows. There is a newspaper account who described him as a young man, which doesn't really narrow things down (laughs) much when you're talking about Major League Baseball players. So that doesn't really help with the, the sleuthing here. But who knows? Maybe there will be more uncovered about Lewis someday. But I do enjoy how he was described by some of the contemporary reports who did not hold back. They described him as a failure unfortunate and a much disgusted ball tosser they also said he was slaughtered knocked completely out of the box and that the way wards wonders pounded lewis's delivery must have convinced that aspirant for fame that the players league was above his class the bisons lost 28 to (laughs) 16
2: i'm just glad and this is noted later in this piece but i think it's It's good we don't know who he was. I think so, too. (laughs) I think it's good that he can just be an anonymous, bad baseball player. You know, you wouldn't have high expectations for a guy who's just coming in off the street to have a... To have a tryout I do like that they you know there's like um, pitching is its own skill and the outfield is its own skill and those are not the same but if I had been in the dugout that day and I saw this I think I, I might assume like oh you just are not an athlete at all and, yeah. and and so you should be done now you should sit on the bench and wait for us to try to undo the mess that you've made but you know they they looked at it and they were like yeah just go try try the outfield like what Inspired them to continue the audition into a new phase of baseballing, right? Yeah, that's yeah, surprising to me. But they must yeah. have just had no—they had no dudes. They had no dudes to be <laughs> no. had that day.
1: And yeah, positions were a little more interchangeable in those days. And also, I guess it was a blowout. So <laughs> at that point, why not station Lewis in left field? What more harm could he do, really? And in Lewis's defense, yes, he gave up 13 hits and three home runs and seven walks and 20 earned runs but he did record a strikeout and some put outs as a pitcher. And once he was moved to the outfield, apparently he singled and scored a run, not a total loss. But yeah, I, I was thinking if I were Lewis, would I want to be known? If I could claim this baseball reference page and step forward and say, I was Lewis. Of course, Lewis, unless he is immortal, is long gone. But I wondered during his lifetime whether he ever wanted to take credit, whether there was ever a moment where he was aware that only his surname was known and he decided, you know what, I'm going to leave it that way. I think I prefer not being known like, uh, I don't know, I could imagine that if it were me. Maybe I would just want to own it and just claim my Wikipedia page. Maybe on my deathbed, I would write to Sean Foreman and confess I was Lewis. And then I would have my name on baseball reference for all time. But really not a ton of incentive for him to say that, yes, I was the one who had the 60 ERA from that one game in the Players League in 1890. Maybe it was an assumed name all along because he knew how bad he would be. But I guess he just didn't have to show ID in those days.
2: Did he tell the story to his friends and his children and his grandchildren? Like, did he say, I played in a, in a professional baseball game? And they would go, like, How did it go? And he's like, You know, this <laughs> is a real experience for I me. I was
1: a much disgusted ball tosser. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I did some stuff out there. How did it, how, what kind of stuff? You know, stuff.
1: Yeah. The wind was blowing in. Apparently but <laughs> that, that didn't help for Lewis here So I guess there were probably Not a ton of people covering this game Who could have collected Lewis's Biographical details and Perhaps he didn't stick around long After this game to answer questions Although really you gotta be accountable Right if you're Lewis you gotta stand at your Locker if they had lockers in those Days and answer the tough questions But for all I know they sent him Packing as quickly as possible Thank you for your service Lewis maybe Someday more information about Lewis Will come to light But I applaud the Wikipedians Who have documented The little known history of Lewis With great ardor
2: Maybe they did come down to talk to him, and because he, uh, you know, like they don't, they don't know what he looks like, cause he's not a real dude, and they, they, they wouldn't have been familiar with him, and maybe they're like, "Are you Lewis? And he would have been like, "No, it's that guy down there." And then he, and then he walked away. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. Like well, they could have tried, but they were foiled by the fact that it was way back when, and they didn't have a good sense of what he looked like to begin with.
1: Hmm. So that's the story of Lewis. That's all we know for right now. (laughs) But I will link to the Wikipedia page if you want to read 2,000 words about how little we know about Lewis. So we will take a quick break now and we'll be back with Misha Thosar to talk about the Mets, followed by Jordan McPherson on the Martins. Really all right it is time to talk about the new york mets and we are joined now by disha Thosar, who covers the mets for the daily news hello disha
0: hi guys thanks for having me on
1: thanks for coming on so the mets off offseason took some unanticipated turns in more than one way and i'm sure that we'll get to the off the field aspect of it all but wanted to start with some of the transactions, some of the player-related developments, because the Mets offseason could have gone so many ways once Steve Cohen was officially anointed as the owner at the end of the World Series. It was clear they were going to be active, that they were going to spend. So what I want to know is how close do you think they ended up getting to what their blueprint was for the offseason, to the extent that they could plan it? You know, they certainly had some players they were interested in. Maybe they got some of them. We know they didn't get some of the others. So, do you think that they look back on it all and are satisfied with what they ended up with? Or do they lament that certain things didn't work out?
0: I think it might be a little bit of a mix of both. I know that with us, you know, with the with the beat, when we kind of have asked them throughout the offseason, okay, where do you think you're at now? Where do you think, you know, because they kept missing out on the big three free agents in Bauer, Real Muto, um, and then Springer, but they, were, but they were in it every time. So that was clearly, you know, the high point of, of what they wanted to achieve was at least grabbing one of those three, if not two. So when they look back at it at the end of the season, it was like, oh, we don't feel bad at all. You know, we... we We feel happy with where we're at with getting Lindor, Carrasco, McCann were their top three at least improvements. Of course, now Carrasco is injured, so that backfired. But I think if they were at all upset or sad about how it ended up, they might have moved past that quickly and just focused on getting the needs that they needed which was mainly in depth they for sure needed to improve that but i think Lindor and McCann make a big difference for them and they have long term extensions to talk about so i think given all of that they're they're happy with where they're at now
1: excellent job answering that question while navigating the fire truck oh it's kind of <laughs> an occupational hazard <laughs> yeah new york city life yeah
2: <laughs> wanted to ask about McCann because I think that outside observers were a little surprised that he was the first sort of big free agent name off the board and that he, you know, he had the the four year deal that he did with New York. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that they were kind of in the mix for Real Muto. I want to step through some of the mechanics of their decision to sign McCann. Was it just that they didn't want to wait and then risk not getting either of their top targets, or was this as much sort of an endorsement of what they see in McCann going forward as it was navigating the potential waiting period for Real Muto?
0: Yeah, so it, it kind of looked like the first one, at least from what they said at the time, because they it seemed like they knew from the start that they'd have to play the waiting game um, for JT, and they wanted to pivot at that time and focus on, okay, you know, if we have to wait, then we might as well get the other two that we need, which is now funny because they didn't get any of the three of them. So they pivoted Quicker than I thought. I was I was surprised at how quickly they went straight from okay, now we're not going for real Muto and just landing McCann. Uh, but even on that end, they they must have known kind of what they were getting from him because McCann the, the day that he signed with the Mets, he immediately asked you know for to learn about the pitchers, to get all their data, um, to start calling them, to talk to pitching coach uh, Jeremy Hefner, and it seems like he's been on that that page with the pitchers since you know when he signed which has been a few months now so again that that for them they can maybe see it working out mm-hmm. if they had some sort of hint that Real Mudo was going to stay with the Phillies all along then then it was smart of them to just pivot and get McCann while they could.
2: And when it comes to him, you know, he's he was an interesting free agent case because he obviously had this like really good single year and then the year before, but his track record as recently as, you know, twenty seventeen is is less sterling. So what about his profile sort of made them confident that this has been sort of a, a permanent shift to the better?
0: Yeah, I think he improved a lot behind the plate along with his stats even at the plate when offensive numbers really improved for him. So I think the the final step that they needed was to see how he can compare defensively um, with his catching metrics. And they liked what they saw from him. And I think they weren't almost expecting that it was, a huge step of improvement from his past few years. I know he I think he was an all-star 2 years ago uh in 2019, but but after that um with Chicago, he made some strides and I think if he can hold it together again in in 2021, then he might even end up being, you know, cuz Real Madrid is already dealing with some injury and coming back from that. So, if he can stay healthy, he might actually be the better get for them.
1: So this is one of those questions that we'll have to cross our fingers and hope that what you say will not be out of date by the time we post this podcast, which (laughs) (laughs) we'll move as quickly as we can. But asking about the extensions, this is obviously the prime time for extensions to happen just in the week or two before opening day. And we know that the Mets are talking to at least Francisco Lindor and Michael Conforto about extensions. So What's the latest that you've heard there? Do you have any sense of the level of interest or how far those talks have progressed or what the potential terms could be?
0: Yeah, I think Lindor at least might be a couple steps ahead of Conforto when it comes to uh, extensions in terms of when the conversation started. It's been a couple weeks now. We first got wind of it starting around March 10th with Lindor, um, and I know just talking to to Zach Scott now, their acting GM, he feels very confident from a very calm state of mind that you know once these things start they'll they'll get going and they wrap up quickly, but they're, you know, everyone on the Mets end of it at least is not giving away too much. And then when you look at Lindor, he is also saying it's very personal to him, so he doesn't want to talk about it too much either. But I think everything he's done so far and everything he's shown to the Mets, like even going from his Sports Illustrated huge cover um, past week, um, it just seems like, you know, it would be very, very surprising if he did not work out some agreement with the Mets, even if that's, you know, his deadline is opening day, which gives them, you know, just about a week to do something. So it is tight, but it's, it's always tricky with the Mets because something seems to go wrong. But I feel like there should at least be optimism on his end that they would not have even given up the players that they gave up if they didn't plan on keeping him as long as they, they might, which could be, you know, as long as 10 years if you're going off of uh, what Manny Machado got with the Padres a couple of years ago. And then switching to Conforto, he was a little more close to the vest than we're used to from him. He's usually very open, especially with the local reporters that just cover the team every day. Um, And he was actually, you know, keeping it even more tight-lipped than than Lindor in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm not talking about it, but he did confirm that. Some of those conversations have started. Um, I think personally, I I think with his case, he might be better off waiting until this season happens to up his value because he had a really good season last year and he's seemed to be, you know, back in that zone. Chili Davis is back, uh, their hitting coach. So if he can compliment what he did last year and add to it this year, then why wouldn't he wait? You know, especially if he already kind of knows he feels comfortable with the Mets and he might have a leverage there.
2: So we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the depth that they did add, especially in the rotation this off season. But I guess the the first place that we can start is maybe with an update on Carrasco and what the timeline looks like for him returning from the injury that he has right now.
0: Yeah, he got this sudden hamstring strain last week, and it's funny because when you look back, he he actually gets banged up quite a lot, and he just seems to you know toughen it out and get back. And I love his perspective on it in that you know he already had this cancer diagnosis, so he's not too worried about a hamstring injury, um, right. but even then, he, which really puts it in perspective to in the whole scheme of baseball, it's like, oh yeah, right, this is just a sport. But I think even then, even if he's not worried, it is a little more on the serious side for the meds because now they have to consider how they're going to make up for his hole. At least for, they say, six to eight weeks is usually how long this kind of injury lasts, but. It's even tough to say with Carrasco because he is a veteran. Um, He knows his body super well. So he might be on the earlier side of that uh, six to eight weeks. So we're looking at maybe sometime in May, um, maybe early May, maybe late May, um, something like that for, for him to come back.
1: Well, while we're on the topic of injured starters, what's the timeline for Noah Syndergaard
0: Oh, yeah. Noah Noah is another interesting case because we, we haven't heard from him at all about how his Tommy John surgery has gone. Um, we haven't talked to him in a year now um, since last camp and before the pandemic, so the before times. But he has been I mean, doing his rehab without any setbacks. So if he continues along that line, it should be around June. But they haven't really gotten into the nitty gritty of it yet. Like he is just, you know, they, they are looking at him throwing three big breaking balls as... A huge milestone. So once he really starts, you know, facing batters, throwing at a competitive level, and then he doesn't have any setbacks, then I would feel more confident saying it's June. But I think he also has a push to, to do it because this is his walk year.
2: So one of the guys who's gonna help try to fill in while he is rehabbing and on his way back is Taiwan Walker, who is is an interesting case. You know, he had a very nice little 2020, but I think there are signs of potential regression in his profile. He has his own health issues. So I'm curious sort of what the the team is expecting from him in 2021. And then, you know, beyond that, because he he did sign the three-year deal, especially if you, you know, if you count the the player option on the third year there.
0: Right. Yeah. I think he was also an interesting pickup and a late pickup, uh, from the Mets. He, he came to camp after it was, he signed at the Mets after camp had already started. And it's funny now because if, you know, he was not on the team and Carrasco suffered this injury, it would, they'd be definitely in, in a sort of rotation mess. So I think he is a super solid pickup. But in terms of what to expect from him so far, he's looked really solid. Um, almost like more, better than I had expected coming in because he just, Hasn't pitched a lot in in the last few years ever since his Tommy John surgery in 2018. So I wasn't really sure if he would, you know, hop back on that on that wagon or or come back, you know, a little bumpy. But he just looks like he's ready ready to dominate and fits into that. Now it would be the the third hole uh, in the Mets rotation. So if he can sort of continue, I, I like to think of him as like this really calm in in the wave because everyone else are just like really flashy or interesting names on the rotation with Degrom, Stroman. A rookie who was last year peterson so he kind of to me fits in as if he can back up what he's done you know in seattle and a little bit of the diamondbacks and i think he can he can be a good
1: pickup for them we talked about this on a recent episode because everyone was talking about this recently but jacob de and the mystery the wonder of his ever escalating velocity <laughs> do you have any insight into this because Not only is it strange, unprecedented that he has been able to throw harder and harder over time, but at least from afar, it doesn't seem like there is a really obvious explanation for it. I mean, it's not like he's coming out and saying, yeah, I went to driveline and I did this and that, or I had a new coach I worked with, or I have a totally different conditioning plan or something. You know, he seems to talk about cleaning up his mechanics in sort of vague ways, so I wonder if from talking to him, watching him, talking to people about him, you have gotten any sense of how he's doing it and whether it can be bottled and applied to other pitchers
0: oh yeah the the modeled part applied to other pitchers i think if if you know the other pitchers could get that from him they would start doing <laughs> it immediately but but he really doesn't give off like you said much and even the coaches around him you ask anything about degrom to the pitching staff and they're like oh well, we don't have to worry about jake he's jake it's like but wait but how but <laughs> but he's still doing these crazy things so what do you mean but when of the things he has said that's been sort of different and it's not much but he has started throwing kind of earlier and and more consistently in the offseason so he's not taking as many breaks and I, i know it's not a lot but other than that he has just attributed his uptick in velocity to just feeling the best like the best version of himself and everything is just coming out right and he doesn't want to you know overthink it or do too much to mess that up. So I think he is at a time where he feels really comfortable with his body. He feels comfortable with what he has. He knows what he can't throw, what he can't throw. And you know, his confidence obviously is only rising. So I think when you put all of those ingredients together, you're getting this crazy, you know, 101, 102 from him in spring and we always joke like is it going to be 105 next year? Like what are we, you know, it's not cuz it it seems like he he doesn't even we asked him actually, you know, does he does he think it could get that high or does he have more left in his tank? And he just very honestly was like, honestly, I don't know. I guess we'll see. And it's like, what? So <laughs> so I don't know that there's, you know, one one key ingredient there, but it's but it's all of it and it's creating this monster that we see, which is degram.
2: I wonder if you can help us solve the problem or the mystery of Pete Alonso's missing power in 2020. So he obviously had this incredible rookie campaign, 53 home runs, and then he comes into 2020 and he didn't have a bad year necessarily. He was still an above average hitter. He had a 118 WRC plus, but there was definitely a dip from the sort of heady highs of 2019. His slugging dropped by almost hundred points. And if you look at his X stats, it should have been even lower than that. So. What sort of shifted for Alonzo at the plate in twenty twenty, and what do you expect from him this year?
0: Yeah, I think his timing was really off last year, and he was chasing a lot of pitches. And that's not something we saw from him in 2019. And he oftentimes at the plate, at least not toward the end, he he picked it up and looked more like himself. But in July, especially in August, he just kind of seemed lost and chasing and timing. All of that was was not great for him. And that really impacted his earlier stats. But then once he felt like he was getting into a groove, that's when the Mets had those two COVID cases and they had to stop and shut down for five days, and and then they stopped um, for a Black Lives Matter movement reason. And again, so I think that he has said that those things, the stop and go really affected him. But also, I think Looking into it a little deeper, he's one of the, the newer or younger, I should say, guys on the team that relies on video during the game. So like on those iPads or even, you know, in the before times, going actually into the video room and, and checking it, it there. So that was not available to him last year. Um, Jeff McNeil also likes that a lot. So I know this year they're doing iPads or, or back or, or something during the in the dugout. So maybe that should help him. But he's also one of those batters that really relied on on Chili to keep him in line after every at-bat and just... and. Keep hold him up in that way so all of those things should be happening and back now especially in spring so he's looked I mean incredible he's super locked in he's like almost too serious like like I've been wondering you know where the the goofy Pete has been that we saw in 2019 but hey if if it works for him it's working
1: so while we're getting all our questions about Mets players who have perplexed us out of the way I want to ask about Edwin Diaz who really perplexed us a year ago or in 2019. I remember talking at the time about what is happening here. How is it possible that someone who looks so unhittable apparently is so hittable and how is it possible that he misses so many bats and yet when the bats make contact, the ball goes so far and that didn't happen in 2020. Fortunately, I know he blew a few saves, but for the most part, the strikeout rate was even higher The BABIP was still high, but the results were quite good. And just looking at the pitcher projections at Fangraphs, he's actually projected for the lowest FIP of any pitcher in baseball, just ahead of Jacob deGrom. So is he fixed now? Is the gopheritis gone? Does anyone know why it was there in the first place? Was it just a matter of terrible luck or did he do something different last year to try to correct that?
0: Well, I know in the off season he emphasized kind of like DeGrom just starting and working earlier and working more consistently, and he also got some help from Pedro uh, Martinez who was helping him, just kind of work on work on his arsenal, work on his stuff. But with with what happened in 2019, I. I still hold the opinion I think that he was affected by the fans of the stadium and sort of that feeling that rocks you when you come from, you know, pitching in Seattle in a smaller market to coming to New York when all the fans were there they were expecting a lot from him. They were also already a little weary of the of the deal that brought him there, the trade. So I think all of those factors may have impacted his performance on the field, although of course when you ask him he said Confidence is never an issue for him and he was never worried about those things and really you don't really expect a, a different answer from him. But I think this year will be a really good test if he can kind of block out that noise and focus on exactly what he's done so far in spring and last year because last year there were no fans so that may have aided to, to help his confidence a little. But if he can kind of Just, you know, ignore the booze because there will be, especially if he blows even one game in April, let's say that it's the fans can quickly turn against him. So I think if he can, you know, handle that a a little better and, and show that he can work both of those things at once, then it should be a big year for him.
2: I want to ask about the the Mets sort of defensive philosophy in the outfield, because there are some very talented hitters on this roster, but I think that, you know, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that part of what attracted them to George Springer was uh, what he could bring to center field defense. So how uh, did they expect to manage this exactly? Because, you know, Brandon Nimmo is not exactly anything to write home about. And some of the backups are uh, a little better in the field, but then you're going to Sacrifice a bunch on offense. So, what what approach are they taking to this?
0: Yeah, I think we might see them do some of what they've done in in the past couple years. Is that they have their their super hot offensive lineup out, which would mean playing Dom and left having Nimmo as your leadoff hitter so he would have to be in center. And then they'll keep that up for as long as they can, maybe you know, five, six innings until they get a lead and then switch them out um, late in the game for, for guys like Almora and Pilar. Or if it's, you know, someone like Jake pitching, they might just start Pilar or Almora and, you know, have him covered at all ends. And I think that's how I mean Luis Rojas, their managers talked about versatility and loving that he has these options. But specifically you said with, with Nimmo, I think he is, he's a really good athlete and he can, you know, kind of work center if, if he wanted to. He's, he's not, you know, I don't think he's in the top five of the conversation and I think Springer would have helped them in that way. but. The Mets wanted the DH badly, and that, that really screwed up their plans. So with Springer, the ideal would have been, you know, Nimmo in left and Springer in center and then Dom hitting DH, but they need Dom's bat in the lineup. They need Nimmo leading off. So the only way to do both of those things and have it be productive is, you know, to kind of take this hit um, defensively. So I think they, they know where they stand on that end, and they keep hyping up, you know, Dom and Nimo especially, saying that they've improved and, and they're good, but... Um, I think fans kind of know what to expect from those two and, and all they can really hope for is that they work the bat early and then the defensive uh, switches happen, you know, somewhere in the middle or late of the game.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned Smith's bat. It has been a big bat very recently. Just looking back at his last two seasons combined, he has a 148 WRC plus 2019 to 2020, which would put him a point below Fernando Tatis Jr. and Cody Bellinger and a couple points above DJ LeMayhew. So pretty good company. But of course, in his case, that's just under 400 plate appearances. So how real do they think this is?
0: Right. No, I think, you know, with Dom especially, I think he puts up those numbers when he's playing every day, when he's playing consistently, when he doesn't have to worry about is he going to be at first today? Is he going to be in left field today? And then that's how he got injured in 2019 with this foot stress at, in, in his left foot, just because he was, he was really doing a lot. And they ask a lot of him. Um, so I think this, this season already in spring, they're they're kind of going slowly with his ramp up. They didn't even play him in a lot of spring games up until the end. Then he had like this wrist issue. So and he said he would have played through it if it was the season. So it seems like they're trying to give Dom a, a cushion here, at least a start so that he can be the best version of himself once the season starts. But I think he's going to get a lot of playing time and kind of almost regardless of, of how his fielding is in, in left field. They, they don't really you know, care about that. They trust that that he put in the work. He's continuing to put in the work. But it's his bat that matters. And he's already shown he hasn't done we haven't seen too much of him in in the great league just because they've been kind of hiding him behind the scenes. But but from what he has shown, he looks super powerful and should be able to put up kind of the same numbers that you you were talking about.
1: So we talked a little bit about the rotation. We didn't really get into the bullpen behind Edwin Diaz. Of course, Trevor May is a new addition there. There There's some other new faces. How do you expect that to shake out?
0: Yeah, I think uh, they they also really wanted Brad Hand, so you can add him to almost you know the fourth <laughs> guy that they they lost. But that seemed like something that you know he just wasn't ready to be in New York because they offered the Mets offered exactly what he went for eventually with the Nationals. So I think. Without him, and of course without Set Lugo, who's going to start the season injured, the bullpen is kind of a question mark because Trevor May, like you said, is is a good pickup. Aaron Loop is another good pickup. Miguel Castro is, is a kind of a sleeper in that way that you might not expect him, but he could really hold down the bullpen. And then Diaz, you know, everyone's hoping he'll have a good season. But beyond that, the big question marks are Batansis and Familia. And it's every year it's kind of fans hold their breath with Familia. It's like what is he gonna do this time? And and uh I think it, it it's really hard to say because Batansis it's just been sort of discouraging because he has not had the same velocity that he had while he was at the Yankees. And last year he was dealing with, you know, some injuries, so he was saying that impacted it. Um, but this should be a, a clean start for him, a clean break. And we've seen him go from, you know, 89 to 92 with his fastball. He was like 94 once a while ago in camp, and I haven't seen that since. So usually he, he typically increases his, his velo as he goes up, um, especially when the season starts. So there's a potential for that to happen. But I think those at least those two players uh, should be worrying uh, with, the, with the bullpen a little bit
2: suppose we can get the sort of gnarly organizational culture question out of the way here. I don't think that we need to rehash everything that happened with Jared Porter and the revelations of Mickey Calloway's bad behavior while he was with the Mets and the extent to which the organization knew about it, which I think, you know, just adds a really disappointing and disconcerting patina to an offseason that Mets fans could have otherwise been really excited about even without them securing the services of George Springer. So I'm curious what your sense is of how they plan to sort of right the ship going forward and build an organizational culture that is more accountable internally and more welcoming to not only the the folks who work there but the folks who have to work in the team's orbit because you know i think that we were all disappointed with the answers that the org had around their vetting process for porter but the revelations around callaway suggests that this is you know a pretty pervasive problem when it comes to internal accountability so what steps do you see them taking and how <laughs> how optimistic should we be that we might see a, a new mets organization going forward
0: yeah, I think it's it's definitely a good thing that it came to light for them. And they kind of know now, you know, what they should be on the lookout for in some sense. They know what some steps should be to ensure that maybe the Porters and Makeys don't get hired by them. But it's just, I haven't loved Sandy's answers on it. And yeah. the one thing I always like, you know, give him credit for is he's one of the few front office execs even right now talking about it publicly and asking questions about it. When that does happen, it's just that his answers are are usually not great. (laughs) But, uh, I think interestingly, you know, he said he's going to refer to women in the vetting process. And I asked him, who are these women? And, and I get that, you know, he has to kind of protect their privacy, but he said they can be within the organization, they can be, you know, a third party. I mean, he didn't really get too specific about it. And I don't, I also am not of the camp that thinks, you know, just asking women for their opinions is, is going to fix all of this. Yeah. Um, and I think you touched on it and um, completely nailed it, was that this comes down to accountability. And that can't really be on one person. I know that Sandy's answers have largely sucked. And, you know, the front office as a whole is now making this concerted effort to be better. But I think, in general and this could be you know an indictment not on just baseball and the mets but as a whole accountability needs to start with men kind of reflecting um accepting that they might have been creeps before themselves you know and and calling each other out i think that's going to be the the one one of the biggest things that could provide change is just male colleagues calling each other out (laughs) and it doesn't have to be a huge on-camera thing a public thing it can simply be hey that behavior is not cool it's inappropriate but you know until i see that personally i'm i'm not too encouraged i think all of this this corporate hoopla of saying all the right words and and you know making it known that they're going in the right, right direction they have to do all of that but the behavioral changes have to come from within so to be determined. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if there's there's reason for optimism yet, but but at least it's brought to light.
1: You mentioned acting GM Zach Scott. Do you know if there are any plans to elevate someone to a permanent position, or are they just going to back away from that for a while?
0: I think they're going to roll with, with Zach Scott as the GM at least for this season. It doesn't look like they're. They're looking to switch anything up after already going through the Porter transition. And then even before that, um, Sandy and Steve Cohen wanted a president of, uh, baseball ops and they were not able to, to get their, their candidates. Teams just, you know, were not letting them interview. So then they pivoted to, to Porter as, the GM and Zach Scott as assistant GM, and now it's Zach Scott as the the acting GM. So I think at least for this season, he's set the way the way it is, and I, I don't really see them looking looking around it.
2: I wanted to ask about their their front office approach. You know, it's it's a little, with all the, the tumult and change, I, I imagine that this is kind of hard to nail down. But prior to Porter being hired, you know, when Brody was there, they hired some new analysts and it sounded like they were going to try to be a little more analytics forward. And then a lot of those people got let go. And so I'm curious what you think this, you know, sort of iteration of the front office when it Kind of gets its feet is going to look like relative to other orgs in baseball.
0: Yeah, I think they're they're still trying to be a step up from from where they've been, which is I like to think of it as like a dinosaur holding a cell phone. Um, but they, I think they wanted to make a change with Zach Scott coming in, this was when Porter was still there um, as the assistant GM, because he's super numbers based and super analytics based. And he could have just kind of worked that department especially, but now he has a lot more on his plate. Uh, Sandy has a lot more on his plate. You know, like he's the team president it's not like he you know has he's the president of baseball ops and and Zach Scott is the GM that works under him i think they both have just had to absorb a lot of the responsibilities so this might be a season where there's not a lot of change on that end and they still need to make a few hires just to fill that gap so whether you know they are waiting to see how the season plays out to develop some of that or are now just thankful to have some sort of normalcy and breath of fresh air without their, you know, names being in headlines and stuff. I think they might just reset after this season, but I don't think in in any way are they, you know, where they, where they want to be, um, on the analytics end.
1: Do you think the ownership change and the difference in the way that this organization tends to talk to the public and interact with the public Obviously, Steve Cohen became a, a public figure in a way that he hadn't been almost overnight once he joined Twitter, and fans really seemed to welcome him. And if you dig into Steve Cohen's background, then maybe he's a little less cuddly than he seems on Twitter. But still, I think when you go from Will Pons to almost anyone, fans are sort of happy to have you. But Do you sense any change in the kind of collective Mets fan psyche, if that's something you can evaluate going into the season because of that ownership change, because of how active they were over the offseason, or is that just something that's going to take time and actually seeing some success?
0: Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. I think, you know, Mets fans to some degree have had PTSD with the Lepons and some of it, you know, has to chip away in time. But just collectively over the past few months, it's been a super successful off season for them to view it that way. And I like to, you know, say that the, the bar has been really low for any owner, an MOB owner especially, to connect with the fans and just be more public and, and kind of share his thoughts that way. We don't see any other owners going into the public light like that. So really all he needed to do was make a Twitter account and crack some dad jokes and all of a sudden everyone's super happy Happy. So I think him doing that alone has already moved the needle, but and to some degree fans are, you know, waiting to see until April first when games actually begin and, and what difference he can make. And I think you know, Steve Cohen said to us in the past, like he can take the heat, you know, he's not going anywhere. But maybe his first sign of, of actual heat was when he said, Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor, is now on the board of directors. And almost collectively as a you know, Mets fan base were like, What the hell is that? Why? And you know, they, they did it as a classic Friday news dump. They knew, they knew no one was going to like that move and this is more of it seemed like Steve just you know promoting his friend something he he made a promise to do and and it's just fans can see right through that they know they know all about that so I think he has to kind of pick his battles that way if he wants to stay on the good side of Mets fans but there is definitely some uh, hesitancy to to not completely trust uh this new owner and be you know super excited for him
2: We're 33 minutes in, and I'm realizing that we haven't asked you about Marcus Stroman, which is perhaps unsurprising given how early his return to the team was determined when he accepted their qualifying offer. He's such an interesting case because he missed the early part of 2020 with an injury and then opted out for the rest of the season. I know that you reported at the beginning of this month that his velocity in spring was higher than he had seen it this early in spring training. So what are they expecting out of Stroman this year? Mm-hmm.
0: I think, it. yeah, going back to I think collectively we were kind of surprised when he accepted the qualifying offer because I thought he would for sure test for agency, but I think he looked at the market and he was like, yeah, no, never mind. Like this 18.9 mil is the best I'm going to do. And then again it says We actually um someone just asked him today have you have you thought about that and he'll he always kind of says no like he doesn't think about the future and he's just focused on winning but that adds another element to his performance this year especially when he took a break last year he didn't play because of covid so not because he had covid but because of his concerns over it so i think that that break looks like it hasn't affected him at all which is a good thing um, at least for the Mets. Like he's just come out. I, I think one of the most impressive things about him so far has been his release points. I, I It was a few starts ago. I think he just was nailing his release point in the exact same location on every pitch. And it was just insane. I don't think I've ever seen that. Um, So I think he kind of can fluctuate between being that dominant and then, you know, giving up a home run or two and then just completely seeing his Era his stat line fall apart. So so far, at least from him, we've we've seen him being solid. But the Mets also haven't played, you know, too much. There hasn't been too much discrepancy, at least with the teams that they've played. So um, I think when he goes up against the tougher lineups in the NL East, that will be a big test, especially after he had uh, the past year off.
1: All right. Well, we always end these segments with a win total prediction. So I will ask you that in a second. Before we get to that, I remember on our Angels preview segment, I asked Fabian Ardaya to talk for a minute about David Fletcher because I appreciate David Fletcher and I think he's a a fun and good player who is sort of underrated and low profile. And I feel like Jeff McNeil is sort of the National (laughs) League David Fletcher. So having watched him could you maybe convey how he does what he does and why he does is valuable? Because I feel like he gets uh, overshadowed even among some of the sluggers in the the Mets lineup. But he's a really good player and a kind of player that there aren't a lot of these days.
0: Yeah, I think that's a funny comp, but he does get overshadowed. And I think that isn't so much of, you know, it is a little bit of how dominant the Mets lineup can be when it's clicking on all cylinders, but it also just shows that he I think McNeil's biggest problem is he gets super mad at himself for for mistakes that just happen routinely. Um, And these can be, you know, like a strikeout, a groundout, whatever. Basically, when he doesn't get a hit, when he doesn't get on base, he gets super, super mad at himself. And I think that might be his biggest detriment in just, you know, bouncing back and and having a clean, clean plate, at least this season. But again, he's one of those guys, and I, I don't know if this even sounds cliche for people that just don't follow the Mets on a, on a regular basis, but he was one of those guys that last year that made a big to-do about Chile not being in the dugout for him. And I think he and Alonzo and JD Davis are three of the main guys that really lean on their hitting coach to keep them in line. And and McNeil especially has a, a special relationship with Chili. So I think if those two, you know, can kind of keep each other where they need to be, then he can also be be good for them. But I, it's like it, anyone's funny when he like, you know, strikes out and curses into the in the mic and like he just gets he gets really riled up. But I think that doesn't leave that doesn't you know calm down for a bit so i would say that that's one thing to to keep an eye on with him but other than that i think he is just such a good natural hitter and when he's at his best he just doesn't he's not thinking about it too much
1: yeah i forgot about that that's something that we'll have to say farewell to again as fans get back to ballparks the extremely audible yeah. profanity on baseball broadcasts yeah, that
2: exactly <laughs> he'll just have to yell louder <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly be good at lip reading
0: <laughs> all right,
1: so I have given you time to formulate a prediction while talking about Jeff McNeil, hopefully. So how many games do you envision the Mets winning in 2021?
0: So I don't know if I'm going off in a limb here, but I think it will be at least their first 90-win season since 2015. We all know what happened then. Uh, they went to the World Series. So I'm going 92 70 uh, for, for this year. We'll, we'll see if that works out.
2: All
1: right. Well, you can read all about it in the New York Daily News. Read Disha there. You can find her on Twitter at her name, Disha Thosar. You can also read the Daily News to find out where the fire was during this segment. And hopefully people put it out and it wasn't anything serious. Thank you very much, Disha. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. We will take one more quick break and we'll be back with Jordan McPherson to talk about the Marlins. We are back and ready to talk about The Miami Marlins and we are Joined by Jordan McPherson who covers The Marlins for the Miami Herald Hello Jordan. Hello Ben, hello Meg Great to be with you guys again. So most Pressing question to ask about the Marlins Here, do we know whether the Marlins security guard at Roger Dean Stadium who spent the Entire Alex Bregman plate appearance The other day banging a trash can Do we know if he was Disciplined? Was he promoted? Is he a hero? Was he tossed out of the park by another member of the marlin security team (laughs) did he come forward at all after making this gesture
3: to my knowledge there has been nothing that has happened to him (laughs) but it was quite an experience to say the least and it just was yet another reminder that we're that much closer to the season and even though we're a couple years removed from all that it's There's still a lot of bad blood out there.
1: (laughs) Apparently, yeah. That's a a bold move for a member of the security team to do that, who is ostensibly, you know, there to probably prevent other people from doing things like that, but apparently considered it important enough that he had to take a stand, and Alex Bregman struck out looking, so perhaps it worked.
3: Yeah, I mean, between that and then there were also, I want to say there were two kids that were had to have been between five and seven years old. The entire first two innings were just shouting cheaters, which I don't know how Jose Siri actually gets involved in all of that, but somehow he ended up feeling the wrath of these kids as well.
1: Yeah, I guess it's understandable that little kids would not necessarily distinguish between Astros who are implicated and Astros who are not. Anyway, an actual serious question about the Marlins. So last season was an arduous one to say the least for the Marlins, and it ended happily or at least was happy for a while before it ended in an elimination But what kind of experience was that to cover? And for the players, the many, many, many players who appeared for the Marlins last year in route to the playoffs, was that a bonding experience? Is this something that in the long run, as this team tries to gel and this core matures, having gone through that together might help? I mean, how challenging was that at the time?
3: Well, I mean, it was... It was a long year for only being a 60-game season. I will tell you that up front. (laughs) I mean, I was in Philadelphia when the outbreak happened. I was there in Baltimore when they played their first game coming back. And when the outbreak happened, I went, okay, there goes the season. And then they rattle off. I think it was five straight wins right after they came back and just found ways to stay afloat. And between the 18 guys making MLB debuts, the 60-some-odd guys who played at least one game, the 20-some-odd pitchers, which I believe they ended up using more pitchers last year in the 60-game season than they did in all 162 back in 2019. But in the grand scheme of things, this team found out that it can make a run. Granted, I know everyone's going to look at it and go, it was only 60 games. If it was 162, they probably wouldn't, wouldn't have made the playoffs, which is probably fair. But the fact that they basically return the entire offense and add Adam Duvall to that, they're going to have Starling Marte for a full year. They're expecting more out of Corey Dickerson. That young starting rotation with everybody who's expected to be in it being 25 or younger, but yet having so much talent that they haven't tapped into yet. There's a lot of optimism going into the 2021 season. Just knowing that they went through, they went through the grind. They went through the pain of the outbreak and were able to find a a lay at the end of the tunnel, and now they're just hungry to not just get back there, but to try to improve on what they did last season.
2: One of those young pitchers who made his debut is Sixto Sanchez, who has that superlative changeup. I think his fastball gets hit a little bit more than you might expect, given the heat. But I'm curious sort of how he's looked so far in spring and what their expectations are for him. You never want to get too excited about 39 innings, but... There was a lot to be excited about in those 39 innings. So what do you expect from him in 2021?
3: Yeah, there definitely was a lot to like. I mean, his debut was great. He ran into trouble when he was facing teams for a second or third time around. You saw that in his last two starts in the regular season against the Nationals and the Braves. And then again, when he faced the Braves in the playoffs. But his changeup is really something to look at. I mean, everyone talks about the forcing fastball that has hit 101, 102. But his changeup is his tried and true out pitch. I mean, it hits about 90 to 91. He uses the same grip for that as he does with the sinker, which adds a little bit of deception to it. And the main thing to caution with six though is he's going to be on an innings limit. Uh pitching coach Mel Steinmeier Jr. said that they're not going to, they're not going to have him out there for 30 starts and he's not going to push 175 200 innings. And He's looked pretty good in spring. Granted, it's only been two outings and about four and two-thirds innings. He gets one more start on Thursday. But there's a very good chance that he starts the season at the alternate training site. Just to get built up a little bit more, he had a couple of setbacks during camp with a visa issue getting into getting back into the States right when camp started. And then he had a false positive COVID-19 test that basically pushed his ramp up to get into spring games back a little bit. So he's only thrown, he threw one and two-thirds innings his first start, three innings his second start, which he was perfect in those three innings. He's supposed to go about four innings on Thursday. The Marlins really want him built up to five innings or about 70 or so pitches before they put him into a regular season game. So there's still a lot of monitoring to go with him for when the season starts. And the rotation really has been the bright spot,
1: or at least has been expected to be the bright spot. As you noted, the lineup was maybe better than expected last year. But not just Sanchez, who is, of course, the most intriguing and exciting member of that rotation, but Sandy Alcantara, Pablo Lopez on down. Now, the Van projections have the Marlins rotation only at 23rd in war for 2021. But what's the case that could be made that this group could be better than that? Who else should people be excited about other than Sanchez?
3: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Sandy Alcantara. He's going to be the opening day starter again for a second consecutive year. And if he didn't test positive for COVID after that opening weekend, a lot of people would be looking at him more than they probably are. I mean, he only had seven starts last year. But toward the end of the season, and once they got into the playoffs, and on top of what he did at the end of 2019, he showed that he can be a workhorse for the staff. He's not going to be the flashies, he's not going to have a a ton of strikeouts, but he'll limit walks, he'll get the weak contact, and he's going to find a way to impress. Pablo Lopez had a pretty big year last year, was the only Marlins starter to actually make every start from Game 1 to Game 60. And he's going to have a breakout year. He's more of a number three guy long term, but for right now, he's going to be the number two. And I've been pleasantly surprised with Trevor Rogers so far throughout camp. His numbers weren't fantastic when he made his debut last year. It was a six something ERA, but he's a six four lefty. His fastball hits 96. His slider's improving. And if he can just keep improving his command and find ways to not let runners on base rattle him like he did last year, He can become a really good piece in this rotation. And then, I mean, you have all the depth afterwards. Edward Cabrera, Nick Niter, Dan Castano, Braxton Garrett. They have a lot of guys who are on the up and up as well. But between Sandy, Sixto, Pablo, Trevor, and then Eliezer Hernandez is going to be a dark horse in that rotation. Doesn't have the stuff that everyone else does, but he has a high strikeout rate. He has a good swing and miss rate. And he can be a pretty good guy in the back end as well.
2: So I feel like Miami after Jeter got involved it was sort of going through a, a period of transition where they were building up infrastructure in the organization, whether it was from a player development perspective or a baseball ops and analytics perspective. And obviously this offseason, they made the move to bring in Kimeng who has a long and storied resume and was with the league. And I'm curious sort of what her approach to the front office has been so far. I know her tenure hasn't been going on for all that long, but in terms of sort of how you would characterize the Marlins front office as either analytics forward or perhaps leaning back into scouting. Sort of where do you see them falling along that continuum, which I know I am I am simplifying and making a bit too neat, but what have you observed of her sort of organizational approach so far?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they've been towing that line for a while now between the, the old days of just going straight out with scouting and adding in analytics. Uh, Dergier, one of the first things he did when he came in was actually build the Marlins analytics department which has grown to about i think they have seven or eight full-time guys who dive deep into everything but kim has been basically keeping with the status quo of what they had what they were building before she came in there's a lot of the front office is just collaboration the way Derek has explained it to me a couple times is he wants voices from basically every department between player development scouting analytics just he wants as many people in the room as possible so that there's a cohesive sense of the moves that they make and nobody's basically caught off guard. And it showed a lot last year, especially when they went through the COVID outbreak and had to basically find 15 new guys in the span of four days. And they they went with between Hadi Raj in pro scouting and Gary Dembo in player development and Dan Greenley who was the main player personnel guy who oversaw the analytics department. He's now an assistant GM. All of them basically found ways to tap into their own sector of the front office, of the baseball operation side, and found ways to figure out the solutions that they needed. And they've been doing that throughout this past offseason as well. So they're... Mixing and matching between both sectors, and it's as of right now, they like what they see. We'll see exactly how it works as the season goes on,
1: so there's a group of position player prospects that the Marlins acquired who haven't really established themselves yet, and maybe they've disappointed or maybe they just haven't carved out a role. I'm thinking of guys like Louis Brinson and Jesus Sanchez and Monte Harrison and Magnus Sierra. These guys are all here. They're all penciled in for some sort of role or on the periphery of the roster. Who is the most likely to still sort of fulfill some potential or have a regular role with this team of that group?
3: Of that group, the way I see it, Magnery Sierra is going to be on this roster, just for the simple fact of, A, he has no minor league options left compared to Lewis Brinson, Jesus Sanchez, and Monte Harrison and all do. Uh He's a lefty hitter, which really the only lefties they have as of right now are Corey Dickerson and whoever wins the second base spot between Isan Diaz and Jazz Chisholm. So having that extra lefty bat helps. And he's probably the best defensively out of all of the guys. And... With his speed, he can be a pinch runner dealing with that runner on second when we go into extra innings. He can fulfill that role. Uh, with the other guys, this is probably Lewis Brinson's last chance. I mean, we saw some strides from him at the end of last season when he was in a platoon role with Matt Joyce in right field. He hit really well against lefties and the Marlins over that second half of the season basically only put him out there against lefties. Monty Harrison and Jesus Sanchez are going to start in AAA They didn't really live up to any sort of expectations last year. Jesus Sanchez only won one for 25. Monty Harrison struck, I think, the number was 51% of the time and was basically just a pinch-runner late-inning substitution last year once the season got to an end. But the Marlins are still optimistic about all three of those guys, Brinson, Jesus Sanchez, and Monty Harrison... But again, with the dearth of outfielder depth that they do have between Blade and Meisner and Scott and Burdick and the list goes on and on and on, you really have to start making a move now or else you're going to get leapfrogged by one of these up-and-coming guys that are behind them.
1: Yeah, so because those guys that we were just talking about haven't broken out, it's not a young lineup as you might expect the Marlins lineup to be. There are a lot of veterans, a lot of over 30 guys here other than, I guess, maybe Isan Diaz, who hasn't hit yet either. But if he's not in the lineup, if it's, you know, one of the more veteran guys on the bench, then you're looking at a pretty old group. And so... It's tough to tell exactly what the identity of it is. It's just kind of players who have come from elsewhere and it's not clear whether they'll be around for the next great Marlins team. I think Joe Sheehan referred to the Marlins position players as as faceless a bunch as you'll find in baseball right now, which might sound harsh. I'm sure they're not faceless for you or for Marlins fans, but on a national level, maybe so. Do you think that these players will be trade bait if they're having good seasons in July? Do you think that some of them will hang around? What's the long-term hope? And is there going to be a promotion of younger players throughout the season, or will that have to wait for future seasons?
3: Yeah, the Marlins, it's an interesting dynamic where they're in right now, because when you look at the position players that they do have, Corey Dickerson in left field, he's on the last year of his deal. Starling Marte, center field, last year of his deal. Adam Duvall, right field, one-year deal with an op- with a team option. Jesus Aguilar, first base, last year before free agency. Miguel Rojas even is in the last year with an option before potentially hitting free agency. If the Marlins come out hot and find themselves in the thick of a playoff race, I don't expect much to happen. If they come out flat, which again, we know how stacked the NL East is and the their first couple months of the schedule aren't pretty, we could see a lot of movement come July 31st between the position players. And then even some of these relievers who they brought, I mean, Jimmy Garcia is on his last year as well, and he's going to be a guy who could easily be a 7th, 8th inning guy for playoff contending teams as well. So again, if they're in a good spot, I think they hold on until the end of this year. If not, we could start seeing a lot of the young guys once August rolls around.
2: I guess this is another broad org question, but, you know, as we're thinking about those young prospects, Miami's sort of taken this interesting approach where they have targeted from a trade perspective, especially sort of big tools guys who have high ceilings, but also have, you know, potentially very low floors. You know, we saw some of those, like, Toolsy dudes make their debuts last year right? We saw Jazz up, but I'm curious What their approach to player Development was in the pandemic year Because you'd think that a system like this Where you, you know, have guys Who are really promising but do need some Refinement, you know, might suffer Significantly with all the off time I know they were able to get some of those guys into the Alternate site and many of them played because of COVID, but for the folks who were at Home, what was their approach to player Development and how did they try to make sure that 2020 didn't prove to be a lost year for them
3: yeah, that's a good question. It's one that I've been asking throughout spring training and trying to get the insights, especially once the minor league season finally does start back up. Uh, they've been doing, they did a lot of work through Zoom, having players talking with the hitting coaches throughout up and down the organization to just make sure that they're still on target. They're still getting their reps in, they're still making the refinements that they would have made during extended spring or before minor league season was starting ultimately during the season. They had a lot of the young guys who weren't on the 40 man roster. They did a month long instructional league camp where a lot of the 2019 draft class guys and a few of their international signees were able to get, get some time in. And the guys who were at the alternate side, I mean, Jazz, Monty are, I feel like the main two when it comes to the toolsy, high, high ceiling, low floor guys. They were around from day one of day one of camp and were around the big leaguers basically all season, whether it be the alternate site or on the big league roster. So we saw some minor, we saw some improvements here and there. You're able to see it with Monte this spring. He had a lot more plate discipline than he did a year ago. He was drawing more walks, he was taking a lot more pitches and still ripping it off the bat with 109 mile-an-hour exivelos. So we saw some incremental growth. It's will be interesting to see how they handle everything once they go back into AAA and start getting, at least this speaking for Montex, he was already optioned down, seeing how he handles the, being able to get the everyday reps again that were lost or a good bit last season and what the next steps will be for him.
1: Kim Eng was hired because there was a vacancy created by the departure of Michael Hill. So Hill went to MLB and Kim Eng came from MLB. And I wonder what exactly caused that parting of ways, because you might say on the surface, well, you've built up some prospects, you made it back to the playoffs. This seems like a strange time for the longtime GM or president of Baseball Ops to walk away. I know there was some talk of extensions as a possibility but then that didn't happen so was that just a matter of both sides needing a change of scenery or personnel or was there more to it did the marlins feel that the lack of development of some of the players we discussed earlier was a stain on his record or that you know six toe aside maybe they didn't get enough when they kind of broke up the core of the previous team
3: I don't think it had anything to do with the development of the guys because, I mean, if we want to talk about the trades, I mean, 6 been has worked out. That entire Marcelo Zuma trade has worked out on that front with Sandy Alcantara, now their two-time opening day starter. Magnery Sierra is here. Dan Castano, who was the fourth piece in that trade, really has he stepped up last year, and he's going to be pitching depth for them. And then they flip Zach Gallon for who they hope is their shortstop of the future in Jazz. Obviously, the Yellow trade, we all know where things things have gone on that front. And really they're gonna need probably gonna need at least Ison to step up to at least give them salvage it with at least one of the guys there. And then with the Stanton trade, Jose Devers is a guy who they're very high on. And Starlin Castro gave them two years to work Ison Diaz at second base and get him ready. And then George Guzman, I'll see what happens with him. I'm assuming he's gonna become a reliever at some point. But there were some differences when they were negotiating the extensions. I don't know all of the specifics with it, but it would be hard to deny that uh, money and specifics with financial terms more than likely played a factor in it. And ultimately, they're happy with Kim Ang. Derek Jeter obviously has a very close relationship with her from the time with the Yankees. She actually negotiated his first big contract extension. So they've been close from his playing days and her time as assistant GM with the Yankees and then on throughout her career. So they're happy with her and they know that she's going to be, she's going to have some decision-making and everything, but there is still that collaborative nature that I mentioned earlier that Jeter has been trying to foster inside the front office.
2: I think we can maybe shift back to some of the guys who will see substantial time on the fields this year. And I want to ask about the season that Miguel Rojas had because, you know, he is, always been a, a valuable defender but last year really took a step forward albeit in you know 40 games and 143 plate appearances with the bat to notch 142 WRC plus I imagine that some regression is coming for him because I don't know that he could necessarily sustain such a jump but what did you see the difference for him being last year and what are your expectations for him in 2021
3: yeah Meg I'll, I agree there's probably going to be some regression with Miguel Rojas offensively but Every year since I started covering this team in 2019, and you just see him gaining more confidence with playing every day. Because before 2019, he was that super utility, throw him wherever you need to give a guy in the infield a day off, and he didn't really know exactly when his next start would be. Once he started playing every day as the starting shortstop in 2019, things just started clicking for him with getting the steady at-bats, getting the steady... Steady chances to to get at bats, get the get the approach right, and he's just started to find himself. And Don Mattingly probably said it best at the beginning of spring training that every time he thinks he has a ceiling for Miguel Rojas, Miguel just finds a way to to exceed it. So I think there's gonna. I'm expecting a pretty good year from him. Obviously defensively, I'm I'm not worried at all about him. And at the plate, whether he's batting leadoff or whether he's batting in the a hole, he's going to give give a steady at bat, and he's going to be a tough out. Regardless of who he's facing,
1: we talked a fair amount about the hiring of Kimeng this offseason because it was a noteworthy hiring, but that was about the only time we talked about the Marlins because they didn't do a whole lot else that would have drawn our attention. And I wonder whether you think they came close to doing anything splashier. You know, I know that there were some rumors about Marcelo Zuna or Wilson Contreras do you think anything like that was anywhere close to happening? And if not, why do you think that they approached the offseason in a pretty restrained way? You know, you could have looked at it and said, well, we're an up-and-coming team. We just made the playoffs, so therefore we should build on that success. I, I think that's something that we talked about going into the pandemic shortened season was, will some team luck into the playoffs or make it maybe at least in part because of the shortened schedule and sort of buy into themselves as a contender perhaps prematurely and it doesn't seem like the Marlins have done that unless they buy into themselves so much that they thought that they didn't really need to add to make it back to October
3: yeah well obviously the main signing was Adam Duvall and then they re the bullpen Anthony Bass the World Five guys yada 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 but I didn't expect them to make a splashy move per se for a couple reasons. One, obviously there was still a lot of limbo after COVID, not knowing what attendance policies were gonna be like, not knowing what exactly the revenue streams were gonna look like. And then secondly, they're still finishing up the negotiations on their TV deal. So without knowing exactly what those numbers were going to be, the Marlins knew they were gonna have to be reserved in a sense, just because they didn't wanna overspend and then find themselves in a tricky situation. Obviously, I wasn't expecting like a Mark, like a John Carlos-Stan extension type thing. But to add a guy like Duval to round out the lineup, it seemed like a good move. Obviously, they're looking at a lot of their prospects and want to see what they're going to do for the next step. So holding off this year and then waiting until next offseason, no matter what, I think tw- the offseason prior to 2022 is when we're going to see some sort of Movement, Whether it's a big trade or getting a couple guys through free agency, because again, they're going to be losing a lot of their guys unless they lock some of the position players that they have up. So they're going to have to do some sort of thing, some sort of signing, some sort of trade, some sort of something next offseason. I think they're kind of holding their chips until then and having this year sort of trying to buy their time until then?
2: I mean, they're certainly going to have room to spend. We, I think, have their estimated payroll this year at a mere 62000000 million. I'm curious what the financial repercussions of the pandemic were like for a team like Miami. And I, I swear to the Marlins fans listening, I'm not trying to take any shots at the attendance prior to the pandemic, but they don't seem to have been a team that was as um, dependent on gate receipts just given what their attendance was like in non-COVID times. So to the extent that you're able to tell, because we know that teams are cagey with this stuff, where did they find themselves at the end of the year? And sort of when do you think, do you expect given some of those young guys and, and an emerging core that they might um, shift into a, a spending mode you know, sometime in 2022 or beyond?
3: Yeah, I've been asking about financial information, I haven't gotten too much from them, but in that vein of... I do expect them to do some sort of spending spree, and I'll use spending spree very loosely here, just because of the fact that they now have their new television deal that's supposed to be finalized in the in the not-so-distant future, which obviously needs to be finalized because opening days about a week away. But their deal, compared to what they had prior with Fox Sports, soon-to-be Valley Sports, was one of the worst in baseball, and now they're expecting to have some considerable upgrades on that front. So with the money in hand from that, on top of what they'll get with revenue sharing and things of that nature, I think they'll be in a better position going into next season to do a spending spree. Obviously, they have a lot of their prospects who they want to see and give them opportunities. J.J. Bledet is the biggest example. I fully expecting him to be their starting, assuming starting right fielder in 2022. They've got guys like Lewin Diaz at first base. Uh, They're going to have to do something. I'm assuming they're going to have to start having contract talks with Sandy Alcantara and Brian Anderson to keep both of them long-term. So there are going to be opportunities for them to spend, and I would expect them to do something in some capacity. Just how much will be probably the most interesting thing to watch on that front.
1: And you mentioned that much of the winter activity was reliever-related, and we've talked about some bad bullpens during this preview series. We talked about the Phillies' bullpen. We talked about the Mariners' bullpen. The Marlins bullpen had the worst war of all, according to FanGraphs last season. What went wrong there? Was that COVID related? And how did they approach rebuilding it this offseason? And what's their expectation going into this new campaign?
3: Yeah, COVID definitely hurt them early. From that outbreak, eight of their 12 relievers tested positive. So mm-hmm. eight, eight of them, so two thirds of the bullpen they initially had with the opening 30 man roster was gone after three games. And a lot of them, Nick Neider came back and was not the same when he came back. Uh Ryan Stanick came back and didn't really do much. Adam Conley never came back, which I honestly think was an inevitability at some point. But their back-end guys, the guys who they were relying on for the bulk of the work last year, Brad Boxberger, Yimmy Garcia, and Brandon Kinsler, they did their job. It was just a matter of all the rotating pieces behind them. In terms of just mixing and matching guys, finding guys who could fill roles, it just almost no one panned out, with the exception of James Hoy and Richard Blyer. And then this year, obviously they didn't re- they let uh, Brad Boxberger go free agency. They didn't pick up Rand Kinsler's option, so now they're they basically just overhauled it, with the exception of Yemi Garcia, who's going to stay as their setup guy. Uh, they brought in Anthony Bass, who's now on, I believe it's his sixth team in six years, if you include his one-year stay in Japan. But he's more than likely going to be the closer to start the year. They traded for Dylan Floro from the Dodgers. He's likely going to take over the seventh-inning role that Brad Boxberger had. Uh, they traded for John Curtis, who it could be a four-out guy, a five-out guy, or he could be a fireman-type role with getting out in high-leverage situations. They took two guys in the Rule Five Draft. They selected Paul Campbell from the Rays, and then traded for uh, Zach Pop, who the Diamondbacks originally took from the Orioles. Zach Pop is impressed. He's going to be a low leverage guy to start, but I think he could potentially move into more high leverage stuff as he gets back after almost two years without baseball due to Tommy John surgery. And then they signed a few veterans: like Adam Simber, Ross Detweiler. So they have more experience in the bullpen. It's just figuring out what the roles are going to be outside of the three late inning high leverage guys and seeing how Don Daly wants to roll that out. But barring another outbreak, they're going they look like they're going to have a pretty good group especially compared to what we saw last season.
2: You mentioned Bladey, he, you know, he got what was it? 38 games of minor league experience in 2019 before the pandemic hit. I'm curious sort of how he looked last summer and then how he's looked so far in spring. I know that we don't expect him in the big leagues right away, but he is a, a nice bright spot for Marlins fans. So how has he looked so far?
3: I've been really impressed with with JJ. I mean, everybody talked about since he got drafted from out of Vanderbilt that He's a polished guy. His swing is going to work at the big league level. They took the hitch that he had in the swing his last year in Vanderbilt, and that's almost completely gone now. He's a lefty. He hits for contact first and then lets the power come, come as he progresses. And his at bats have looked very professional for a guy who, like you said, hasn't even played 40, 40 games at the pro ball level. I would fully expect him to start in double A, and my assumption would be he's gonna be Full, he's going to be big league ready by 2022. If the Marlins do end up falling flat early and they do end up making some moves at the trade deadline, there's a chance we could potentially see him come August, come mid to late August, or even or in September, depending on how well they feel he's doing at the minor league level. But they're expecting him to be a fast riser.
1: So, a couple of questions about Marlins Park. So, one is about the dimensions, right? They brought the outfield fences in last year. Did that change the way the park played in any noticeable respect? That's the the first part of the question. Second part is I read that they got rid of the fish tanks behind home plate at Marlins Park, which... Maybe is safer for the fish. I know those tanks were hit by a foul ball and sprung a leak a few years ago, but the fish were fine. And that was a nice little distinctive touch. So first they came for the home run sculpture, and then they came for the neon green on the outfield fences, and now they've come for the fish tanks. So it seems like they've sort of systematically removed some of the quirkiness and character from Marwan's Park, and I wonder what the rationale is there. So question about offense and question about quirk.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, Marlins Park is still a pitcher park. I mean, we all know that the dimensions, even with moving uh right field and right center in, there were, a, there was a little bit more action for guys who were able to hit it out there, but nothing extremely noticeable on my end. I'd have to run the numbers just to be doubly sure, but I didn't, from what I saw during the 20 some odd games, cause they had some of their home games on the road last year. There wasn't really too much of a difference in that small sample size. We'll get a better feel for it this year when they have. 81 games out there and then yeah that's just the fish tank it's it's gone as well i saw i got to see that when they gave us a tour last week to to show off the health and safety protocols to me it is what it is i've never been been that big on just the noticeable changes the home run sculpture still at the ballpark it's just outside and -hmm. it's still going to go off during with home runs and it's going to go off i believe they said they wanted it to go off at 305 every day just because Miami. But I mean, it is what it is. They have a lot of other things that are going on at the ballpark. They have a brew hall inside the ballpark on the main concourse level. They have some other areas that they're going to expand out once they start allowing more fans in. Uh, the area that used to be the Clevelander area was there. They ended up using that because it was outdoors enough for there to be the weight room for, for guys because they needed to have more space out there. They're going to make that another high end place. So there's still enough things in at the ballpark to keep up with the quirkiness, but yeah, the fish tank's gone, the home run sculpture's moved outside, and the neon green is now blue. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, we always end these things by asking for a win total prediction. So this season will hopefully be much happier and healthier and safer and longer. So how many games do you see the Marlins winning this time around?
3: Yeah, it's interesting because, again, I feel like... On the field, the on the field product is going to look better, but if the NL East plays out the way that I think it is, just with how stacked it is between the Braves as the three time defending division champions, the Mets with all the moves they made, the Phillies restocking their bullpen a little bit, the Nats making a few moves, I'm gonna go with 74 wins this year for, for the Marlins. They could surprise me, they could prove me wrong, but I still feel like they're gonna be hovering around, hovering around the 500-ish mark by season's end just for the sh- just because of the sheer toughness of the division. So if
1: they end up there or if it's even worse as I think the projections would suggest, do you think fans will take that in stride? I mean, coming on the heels of that sort of unexpected playoff appearance last year, Will people look at that for what it was a a great story and a great accomplishment by these players who bonded during a difficult time and made it to October, but not necessarily a step back in that It was sort of ahead of the timeline that I think people had for the Marlins and that the Marlins had for themselves. You know, I'm just sort of wondering what that would do to the perception, because when a a team does a tear down or a rebuild or whatever you want to call it and then makes it back to the playoffs, sometimes there's an expectation that, okay, well, they're back now and they're just going to be good. And thinking of that, especially with the perception of Kim Aang, you know, coming in with high expectations, perhaps unfairly, if the team takes a, a step back sort of superficially, even as it maybe makes progress under the hood, I wonder what effect that would have.
3: Yeah, that's a fair question. The way that I perceive it, which this is coming from the media side, not the fan side, which I know has some distinctions in there. But I feel like what we're going to see this year from the Marlins is what should have happened last year if the pandemic didn't happen. The year where we're going to see a lot of the prospects, you are going to see a lot of the full-on growing pains of guys going through their lumps. And then 2022 now becomes the, okay, this is the proving year. This is the year where things actually need to 100% take a step forward or else it just calls into question everything that's happened through the first four years as they go into year five next year. This year if they can show the production takes a step forward even without the record, I think they'll be they'll be okay on that front from a fan perspective. But it just gets to the point which I think I mentioned it with this last year when we talked, it's they are starting to run out of time to show to show the results at the big league level. Because you can talk about the how highly ranked the farm system is, you can talk about all the prospects, you can talk about what they're building, but the results are gonna have to come eventually. And I feel like next year, which will be year five, that, to me, feels like a cutoff year to finally start seeing the results at the big league level.
1: All right. Well, you can follow along with Jordan on Twitter at J underscore McPherson 1126. You can read him as well at the Miami Herald. Thank you, Jordan, for coming back. Yeah. Thank you guys again for having me. Always enjoy doing this. That'll do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Gabe Dusenberry, Michael Goldfarb, Henry O'Brien, Pat Deacon, and Nick Fogg. Thanks to all of you. We'll probably be doing emails next time, so send us some at podcastoffangraphs.com. At you can also message us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another show a little later this week. Talk to you then.
2: Get on, get, on, get on.